Well, welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Josh Cantwell. Uh, Josh is uh, used to working in uh, as a financial advisor, but in 2004, decided to change his life for the better, of course. And he was able to combine his knowledge of financial uh, investing with real estate and to create a very successful business which quickly grew into uh, closing over 100 wholesale and short sales deals per year. That's hard to say. Uh, Josh now owns about 4,000 apartment units uh, with various JV partners. Today, he focuses purely on cash-flowing multifamily properties. And in 2007, also, Josh founded the Strategic Real Estate Coach, which coached thousands of investors on how to replicate his success. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this for a long time since you uh, you joined me on my show. That's time flies. It's been like six months or nine months since we did that interview. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. I know. And I mean, we've been talking a little bit uh, just before before this interview. And, you know, even in the last nine months that uh, since we last spoke, it's just a lot of things have changed. A lot of uh, different direct directions. I think you've kind of like uh, had a, a you have a different focus now not quite different but you have a uh, more defined focus I would say um, and uh, so tell tell me about that tell me about kind of like uh, what what it's like that right now what kind of investment you're focusing on and you can also talk about maybe some of the investments that uh, you were doing before and um, yeah and talk about that and why you focused on the new ones Sure. You know, I think COVID's an interesting time, Eric. It, it, and if, if you're a good business owner, if you're a good CEO, you're really kind of paying attention to your business and learn a lot when you're really pushed and stressed and, you know, challenged. I think COVID challenged everybody. And back when I look at March of, of 2020, at that point, we were still flipping some houses, um, you know, raising money from private investors, buying properties, fix and flip. We also had a fund with about 25 million bucks in it where we were doing private lending uh, for both residential and commercial deals. We're also brokering uh, some, some lending uh, for other institutions. And uh, at that time, we owned about uh, 2,000 units of apartments. Uh, when COVID hit, I'll never forget the week that COVID hit. Eric, you probably remember it. You know, I remember oh, yeah. March 16th is the date. It was a Monday uh, when the capital markets essentially froze up overnight. And to compare that to 2008, you know, in 2008, the capital markets froze up. It took 18 months for the market to realize that banks were not liquid, that values were not there, and that people's you know, banks' balance sheets were, were, were almost negative. And we went into the financial crisis. The same thing happened in March 16th, uh, but it happened in one day. And so we were forced at that time to really reevaluate. I actually have a picture, Eric, probably like you my head's down inside of my arm because I had to make like 10,000 decisions in 10 days um, about staff and who we're going to keep and if we're going to keep lending. So good news, bad news. Um, bad news out of that is, yes, we had to let people go. Bad news out of that is we stopped doing private lending and hard money lending. Bad news is we had to wind down our fund. Good news is, is 18 months later, since COVID originally hit, we're exclusively and purely focused on our apartment portfolio. Uh, we bought over 950 units just this year. Uh, between this year and last year, we acquired almost 1,500 units. Um, and in that time, apartments have become very competitive. Values have yeah. gone up. We've liquidated and sold a couple of apartment buildings for massive, uh, you know, eight-figure 
uh, I'm sorry, seven figure windfalls in less than one year on some deals. Um, and so today we're exclusively looking at value add apartment buildings um, to buy them, fix them, stabilize them, and cash flow them for the long term. So good news, bad news. Uh, you know, you learn a lot when you're pushed, when you're stressed. Um, and I think we've done a good job of really narrowing our business, kind of pivoting our business and being singularly focused on investments that will cash flow. Yeah, I think the, the singular focus, I think that re, I really helps, I think, to uh, kind of uh, at the beginning when things are going very well and stuff like that, you try to venture into into different things and everybody tried that and say, OK, well, I have something that's solid. Uh, I have a strategy that works very well, but now oh, I want to venture into into something else. And this is something that I talk about in my book as well is stick to your, with your strategy. If you find a strategy that worked and that's making money and stuff like that, then, you know, that you have like wind in your sail kind of thing, you know, right. just stick with it. If you want to then optimize it. If you have then other ideas or the strategies you want to implement, make sure that you, you know, you continue or you bottle that in. <laughs> And then you you start you start something else. Of yeah. course, you know, you know, COVID kind of changed a lot of perspective, a lot of things, and uh, you people had to make and you know everybody had to make like some some pretty important decisions. But yeah, so yeah. that's kind of uh, you know my my thing, and I think the singular focus really helps you to to optimize and then uh, really find the best the best deals, and then make sure that you you executing on them as best as possible. Kidding. Yeah, no question. No question. I think, Eric, I think uh, every entrepreneur, and I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I'm 45 years old. Um, I've never had a boss. I've been an entrepreneur for 24 years since I was 21 years old. Um, and there's definitely the, the, the trickery of entrepreneurship, right? The, the, the devil in entrepreneurship is getting spread too thin and being over leveraged. I've been there. I've been there twice. I know what it feels like. And both times was because I had a business that was very successful. I thought it was going to stay successful forever. Mm -hmm. And I yep. thought I could almost take it for granted by starting one or two or three other businesses. Then all of a yep. sudden, those businesses needed more time, more attention, more cash than I ever thought. And I was taking time and money from my very profitable business to put into these new ventures. And then all of a sudden, now I had four businesses that were all sort of failing instead mm -hmm. of the one business that was <laughs> yeah. doing well. And then you were starving the one business that was uh, kind of doing very well. You're starving it of cash and they couldn't do as well as possible. Yeah. So I think, look, when we all read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, when we all yeah. read, uh, you know, Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen, you go back, yeah. you know. Yeah, wow. Those books. You're the first one, the first guest that mentioned that. I actually have his book right here. <laughs> yeah, I've got it on the shelf right over there. It's Multiple Streams of Income, right? Yeah. You look at that and you think, well, what, what do we really learn from those books? It was really to own the asset, right? It was to mm -hmm. buy the asset, own the asset, cash flow the asset, build equity, buy real estate, and wait. Buy mm -hmm. real estate, just let it do what it's going to do. It's going to make you rich. Yeah. But people get caught up just like I did in the transactional work of wholesaling or, or flipping or uh, you know lending, all those things, mm -hmm. being a realtor, all those things are very yeah. transactional. And I yeah. know you have done a great job of building your portfolio and really working mm -hmm. towards cash flowing assets. One of my biggest regrets is that I didn't just keep every deal that I flipped, right? Now we've done good. We've done really well. We own a huge portfolio now, but looking back at the first, you know, 10 years of my investing career, 
I flipped everything that I, I I did. I made a big income, but I had to just, you know, I had to get back up. My buddy, Rob Swanson, you probably know Rob put up a post on Facebook the other day. And Rob said, look, if it doesn't cash flow, it's a job. And that really resonated with me because we've already kind of been doing that, but I've never heard somebody say it in such a short, succinct and powerful way. If it doesn't cash flow, it's a job. And so even now, Eric, in the last really year, as we've just bought and bought and bought all these apartment buildings, it's interesting because I'm not working, you know, 70 or 80 hours a week. We've got property managers, we've got uh, you know, commercial contractors turning units, putting in dog parks, sealing and striping driveways. There's something about doing these bigger deals that's actually easier because you have a more professional workforce, a more professional contractor base. Um, because they know that they can dig in and focus on turning 20 units at a time instead of one rehab at a time. And if I had just worked on that sooner, I'd be further along. Now, I'm not regretting my, where I'm at, but the truth is, is that cash flow is where it's at. Owning the asset is where it's at. And for those investors that aren't doing that, that are still flipping, I would just challenge you. I'd say, listen, take the next year or two and be okay with making less money and at the same time, acquiring more assets. And then see where you're at two or three years from now. You won't regret your decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, and um, so that, that's, that's very good. So in multifamily, multifamily is quite different than, uh, than single family. I mean, one of those things, obviously, is when you add value, it's the value of the property is actually determined by the, what, I, what I call the economic value. So kind of what is the net operating income? and uh, kind of where it is in the neighborhood and stuff like that and using the uh, cap rate to kind of like do all of that and um, so so that this is very as opposed to a single family where it is uh, determined basically by comparable sales which is you know if you're renting it's very you can it's hard to compare right. um, so 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 this is a, the, the great thing about uh, multifamily I really like that uh, the, um, so there's a couple of things too, like you, you have something that I think you have like a, a five step that you, you, uh, you talk about, about multifamily. So how do we, how do people, if they're interested in getting into multifamily, um, so what, what are, what are these five steps or how do they get into that? Yeah. So our business model is really based off these five steps. And step number one is really to find and buy a distressed apartment building. My focus is on buildings really between 100 and 300 units. Um, we, we have assets that are larger than that, but really that 100 to 300, I would recommend somebody that's new to buying a apartment buildings to start with something between 20 and 80 units. Now, mm -hmm. it's so much easier than people think. You see, there's large commercial brokers out there. There's really five or six main shops. And I'll list those right here. There's Marcus and Millichap, Collier's International, Cushman and Wakefield, CBRE, uh, and Newmark. Those five control a significant portion of the deal flow uh, throughout the country. They're national or international shops. And what you can do is you can go to their websites right now. You can find the, uh, let's say you're in Indiana or New Mexico, pick any state, Kansas, whatever. You can find these commercial brokers on their websites, you can go and log in and register to their back office portal on their websites, and you can immediately begin pulling down offering memorandums. Offering memorandums are essentially a packet. It's a broker packet that explains the deal. 
Matter of fact, Eric, I had a student, brand new student. His name is Adam. He's from Cincinnati. He's a residential investor looking to get into apartments. And in the month of August, which was last month, he pulled down 262 active offering memorandums by doing this. So that's step number one is to find, underwrite, and buy that distressed property. So we don't have enough time to go into all the metrics, but yeah, yeah, of course. you want to buy that property today at a distressed mm -hmm. value based off of what the future value is going to look like three or four years from now. Mm -hmm. So I don't really care what the cap rate is now. I don't really care how they're being, it's being managed now. What I care about is what I can make it look like three or four years from now. So we're buying a distressed property compared to the future value three or four years from now. Okay, that's step number one. Step number two is to stabilize that asset by doing some significant renovations and value add improvements. And what I mean is adding dog parks, adding amenities, adding pavilions, adding park benches, better property management, and turning units, improving the building, improving the physical structure. Uh, that's the second step. The third step is we want to be all in for roughly 75%, very similar to residential, mm -hmm. but roughly 75% of that future value. So if I can get all into a building today using very easy numbers, I'm, I'm all in for 1.5 million. I want it to be worth $2 million. Or if I'm all in for 15 million, I want it to be worth 20 million in the future. So I'm going to be all in for 75%. Then for me, Eric, this is where we're a little bit different. We want to hold these buildings forever. So step number four is to refinance within 30 to 60 months and return all of the investors' capital contribution, all of their equity back to them. And we want to lock in a new permanent loan forever. Long-term financing, very mm -hmm. favorable terms, very low interest rates. Finally, step number five is to simply hold that building continue to raise the rents organically and to have and build forever passive income and family wealth through that apartment building. And so for us, it's not about buying buildings, stabilizing them and selling them. I hate selling buildings. Now I've sold some for sure, but I don't like selling them. It's not like the best day ever. We just sold a building last week, made $3 million. But I'm not super excited about that because I would rather have the cash flow and the equity. I mean, what are we going to do with the three million? We're just going to put it into the next deal anyway. So it's not um, something where we're really look, actively looking to flip apartment buildings. It's about buying distressed, stabilizing them through significant improvements, refi and hold forever. That's what creates forever passive income. That's what creates long-term family wealth. Um, and that's the five-step process that we just try to do on every single building we buy. Yeah. So, but when we're looking at this, when we're looking at the the return, the annualized return on investment for that uh, for that building, the, the uh, it doesn't look as good as when uh, when you're selling the building. If I'm selling, the, if I do the the right, I'm I'm looking at it and I say, okay, well, I'm. I'm making three three million dollars now. Maybe it's it was like uh, you may have doubled your money on that uh, on that transaction. Now you can go and do it do it again, and then yeah, I mean it it is a little bit more of a of a job, but you're also getting more handsomely paid for that. And right. uh, <laughs> sure. so I think it's a little bit about both. We've done fifteen yeah. 
locations, right? We've done 15 large apartment complexes and we've sold off two out of the 15 recently. And the only reason for that really is because the competition's so good, the competition's so high, it's forced values up, money's so cheap, it's forced values up. So we decided mm -hmm. to exit a couple of buildings and just reinvest those dollars in our next deal. Um, but I think as a strategy, like we talked about earlier, Eric, it's important to have a specific strategy. It's mm -hmm. important not to constantly be pinging yourself around back and forth like a ping pong ball and changing your strategy or modifying your strategy. It's important to have one backbone of your business where you're trying to make deals fit into a certain box. Yeah. You know, when I got into real estate 15, 20 years ago, everyone talked about, well, every deal is a deal. Just be a transaction engineer, be a transaction entrepreneur, yeah. find a way to do every deal. I don't, I do not subscribe to that strategy anymore. Mm. It's about finding the right deal because the deals are so much bigger. I only have to do two to four deals a year to create significant, significant cash flow. Uh, so I can pick and choose the deals and make sure they fit into that box. Um, and yes, if we didn't sell the building, you know, our investors would probably be getting a, a seven to 10% preferred return, maybe yeah. some additional cash flow. But then you do have to factor in the equity, their equity position within the building because they get equity too. So the equity is the same as the cash out. It's just on paper versus real cash, right? Mm -hmm. Returns essentially the same. It's just, did you actually realize the return and actually have the cash in your account or is it in the form of equity? Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, so what kind of renovation are you doing? Like how much of the, so you say that you're 75% all in when you compare to the, the final value or the after repair value of the, of the property. So there's obviously a purchase price in there. How much, portion of that 75% is, is actual rehab costs or, uh, or value add? Yeah, great, great question. I, I don't know that I have a specific percentage, but what I would say is that, look, when we go into a building, our average renovation per unit is about five to $6,000. Some oh. units, we're doing a full turn, meaning yeah. we're spending eight to $10,000, brand new kitchen, brand new bathroom, paint, carpet. Actually, no, we don't even do carpet. We do LVP. Um, appliances and, and trim and, and all those kind of things. And then other units are more of a make ready where, you know, could be 500 bucks to a thousand bucks, 1500 mm -hmm. bucks. So yeah. it blends out. Plus we're doing some exteriors. We're doing roofs, dog parks, pavilions, uh, ceiling and striping driveways, adding, you know, swing sets and, and playgrounds, mm -hmm. um, you know, really improving the resident experience. And so when we look at the improvements, there there are a number of things that we do to drive income and reduce expenses. And the first thing that's so important to us is to improve the resident experience. Yeah. And that means upgrading the units, upgrading the building experience, the amenities, and upgrading the management. Almost every building I've ever bought, Eric, they had terrible property managers. Yeah. People that yeah. weren't returning phone calls, weren't doing maintenance repairs, trouble tickets, um, you know, the, 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 I mean, look, the, you and I both know, Eric, how far paint and carpet can go. Yeah. Right. I'm blown away by how many buildings I walk and you walk through the common spaces and they're not painted and the carpet looks like garbage yeah. and the yeah. resident experience is bad when they could be spending just a few hundred or a few thousand dollars on paint and carpet in the common spaces. And that immediately upgrades the resident experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so give an example, like one of the deals that we just bought back in April, we bought it for 11.65 million. Uh, we're putting uh, 1.4 million into it. So we'll essentially be into it for 13 million plus our soft costs. So call it 13.5 million, all in 13.5. We're going to bump the rents from $680 up to $850. And at that 850 blended rent, that puts the value at 19 million. Wow. So then we'll refi, mm-hmm. put a new loan on it, and mm-hmm. we'll be able to cash out about a half a million to a million dollars of cash out refi proceeds. And we'll have a stabilized building all in for about 14 and a half million that's worth 19 million. Mm-hmm. And it all comes down to improving the resident experience, turning the units, upgrading the building. That whole process will take us about 30 months, about two and a half years. And look, for your audience, Eric, for my audience, if they did that one deal, it would completely change their financial life forever, right? Mm-hmm. Just one property. So yeah. that's what it comes down to really thinking about what do the tenants need? What do the residents want in order to bump those rents? The rent, the blended rent is the number one metric in multifamily and especially large apartment buildings. What can you push the rent to? Right. Because all the other factors are kind of all rules of thumb, 50% expense ratio, those kind of things. So, how high and how fast and how hard can you push the rent? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, some of these uh, you talk about bad management. Uh, so I would also say like uh, bad ownership sometimes too, because uh, I bought we bought a few apartment buildings, but they were self managed. So we actually bought them from the owner who was managing them, sure. and uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's even better. <laughs> because it he was uh, I, we were walking the uh, the building with the uh, with the owner and he, and we're just like hey why uh, you know what if what if we did this and stuff like that and what what do you think we can increase the rent to and stuff like that and he kept saying that but there's no way you can increase the rent this is this is what it is this is this uh, neighborhood and stuff like that but what about like uh, vinyl planks and what about kind of like opening up the kitchen over there and then having a lighter color paint and all that? Ah, there's nothing you can do here to increase the rent. Blah, blah, blah. So, but, so we bought the building and we made, put some, uh, made the renovations that uh, we obviously tested a couple of units and we were able to uh, almost double the rent. Like the rent went from 550 to 850. Um, well, not quite double, but uh, you know, so... 550 to 850 and then um and now it's now it's a little bit higher than that but it was incredible like he, that person thought that that the, the the seller thought that this was this was it that was uh, there was no way to increase the rent and um so that's that's kind of interesting and bad bad management is also something uh that you see they they don't see any point in doing in having clean and nice amenities and all of that but it matters. It attracts. It attracts a certain group of people. You want to attract the right people that are going to pay rent. They're going to, you know, they're going to take care of the building. You know? the, the thing that I see, Eric, so often in, in my area. So we invest primarily now in the Midwest. You know, we own buildings in in, in the Atlanta submarkets, uh, Mobile, Alabama, Oklahoma, Houston, Texas. But we're focused right now really in the Midwest. Um, the Sun Belt, the South, has so much competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, we, when we own buildings there, we have a 442 unit in Houston that's under contract. We're going to close on yeah. that next month. But really, again, we're still focused on the Midwest. And the reason why is every building I look at in the Midwest, especially in the Midwest, the suburbs, workforce housing, there's a theme. And the theme is laminate, 
carpet brown. And what I mean by that is all of the flooring and the countertops are laminate. All of the units have carpet and they all have brown cabinets. Well, if you think about what today's modern looks look yeah. looks like, it's white shaker cabinets, black matted hardware, it's granite countertops or some sort of butcher block, maybe countertops. Butcher blocks are really cheap and they last a long time. They're easy to replace. And LVP flooring. Yeah. So that's a modern unit. So even when somebody says, well, you know, we push the rents as high as we can, you're never going to get any more. That assumes that they stay in the same style of unit, which is typically yeah. laminate, carpet, brown, boring, very 15, 20 years ago type of stuff. And the Midwest has a lot of this. Now, down in the South, the buildings are newer. The buildings are traded more often. They're upgraded more often. So, and there's a lot of population migration and job growth. People are moving there. So there's buildings trade more often. But look, in the Midwest, if you're looking at anywhere in Ohio, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Kentucky, Kansas City, these kind of areas, um, there's a tremendous amount of buildings that are 50 years old that have not had these significant updates done. And that allows for those kind of rent bumps that you talked about, you know, yeah. a rent bump is 700 to 900 yeah. or a rent bump 800 to 1050. That can happen when you upgrade the resident experience and upgrade the units. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why our focus is there versus all the other areas we've invested in the past. Yeah. And, and increasing that rent is, is, is very, it's not, I wouldn't say easy, but you need to renovate, you need to update, you need to market to certain, you need to have the amenities. When you get into the the other side of it, I mean, it's all about inc- increasing the net operating income, the NOI. Going on the expense side, it's a little bit tougher to kind of like go and cut down on the expenses and kind of still maintain uh, a good uh, resident experience. Mm-hmm. So a- any tricks there on updating the uh, or kind of like fine tuning the uh, the expense side? Yeah, great question. That's what I was going to go. So sorry, sorry to jump in and interrupt you there, but that's exactly oh, no, it's all good. So a couple things here. So first of all, water conservation program. Older buildings are almost always going to have some leaks that you're not even aware of. So some sort of low flow program where you can come in, put in uh, the Niagara toilets, the 0.08 toilets, uh, a Moen faucet, uh, you know, new low flow aerated shower heads, that's going to come down on the water expense. So when we do a full water conservation program, you can expect that we would cut the water bill down by 25%. Now I have a building that I'm buying right now. The water bill alone, Eric is $400,000 a year. Cut the water bill down to $300,000, save that hundred grand, that hundred and at a six cap is $1.66 million of value. Yeah. Just by doing that one water conservation program. That's so amazing. That is a big deal. Secondly, is looking at cable and internet billbacks. Okay. When you own a big apartment building, let's say it's a 200 unit or an 80 unit, you can own the internet. You can actually pull in the fiber from the street into your building. You could own the internet and most people in your complex are going to be using some sort of internet and they're going to probably be paying 75 to hundred bucks a month for high-speed internet. Well, you can own the internet, bring the internet into your building. You can put in wireless nodes in a lot of different buildings up in the ceilings, especially if there's drop ceilings in, in your, in your common spaces. 
and you can drop in internet, you can own the internet and then bill out the internet. So instead of you, uh, your residents all paying 75 to hundred bucks a month, they might pay you $50 a month, mm-hmm. but you have a $25 per unit profit. Yeah. So internet and cable billbacks is a second great way. Mm-hmm. The third way is to hire a utility cost consultant. And we've done this. I have a guy is actually, his name is Josh as well, but Josh knows how to buy energy. So he'll lock in rates for gas, for electric, and also for internet and Wi-Fi. And then he'll mark those costs up slightly to us, but it's a better deal than we can get by just Mm -hmm. paying the regular gas bill, the regular electric bill, and the regular internet bill to the local providers. And by doing that, we can cut the utility costs sometimes down by 10 to 20% as well. And as you know, Eric, every nickel that we can save is an increase in our NOI. It's an increase in value. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So those are some quick and easy kind of things. Uh, by water conservation programs, internet billbacks, and utility consultants that we've actually done in our buildings that's worked well. Yeah. So, Josh, we're, we're about to wrap it up. Um, so anything you want to uh, leave our audience with, where they can reach out to you, anything that uh, you want to tell them? Last words. Yeah, last final words, I would say, look, there's two things. One is funding equals freedom. Funding equals freedom. If you understand how to raise private capital, and I mean true private capital, I'm not talking about from private equity funds. I'm not talking about from, you know, equity shops. I'm talking about from true private investors, mom and pops that can fund your deals. Funding equals freedom. The more of that private money you can raise, the more you can control your own deal flow. I actually got $20 million of private money right now that I need to deploy by the end of the year. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for deal flow. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, look, own the asset, right? If you want true cash flow, you want true equity, don't be transactional. Don't flip houses anymore. Don't be a realtor. Own the asset. Let the cash flow, the things that you learn from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and multiple streams of income, Robert Allen, all these guys that you learned from 20 years ago, implement the strategies that they talked about, right? Don't fall in love with real estate and be transactional. Um, and with those two things said, Eric, look, the best place to reach me is just my main website. It's freelandventures.com. Uh, there they can learn about our portfolio. They can become a passive investor. They can join our Facebook group, check out our YouTube videos, all that different type of stuff. It's available at freelandventures.com. Well, thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And good luck with uh, your, uh, your acquisition next, next week, right? I appreciate that, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.